message today, congregation, will focus especially on verses 17 to 22 of Mark chapter 10. But let us begin reading in Mark chapter 10 from verse 13. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. Hear the word of the true and living God. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's. We shall not receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that great book written by the Puritan John Bunyan by the title of Pilgrim's Progress. 
And if you're familiar with that story at all, you know how it begins. There is that man by the name of Christian who felt a great heavy weight, a burden on his back that threatened to drag him down to hell. Until one day, a man came to this man by the name of Christian and told him to flee from the wrath to come. Well, this man, he he began to run as fast as his legs could carry him out of the city of destruction. His own wife and children, they thought he was insane and they called out to him to return. But Christian, he just began to run all the faster. He covered his ears with his hands and began to scream to himself, Life! Life! Eternal life! And you see, this represents what can take place in the heart of an unconverted sinner when he or she catches a glimpse of eternity. Maybe for the first time in his or her life, this sinner begins to seriously ask the question, what road am I on? Am I on the road that leads to heaven? Or am I on the road that leads to hell? Well, in this passage, which we've read in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 21, we read about another such man who is unconverted and yet has caught a glimpse of eternity. And if we compare all the different passages in the Bible that talk about this individual, we know a fair bit about him. For example, we know that he was rich. He was a wealthy man, a man of means, a man of many possessions. We know also that he was young, perhaps younger than than Jesus himself, who at this time was in his early 30s, a young man. And we know that he was a ruler. That is, he had a position of leadership in his local synagogue. We perhaps say today that he was a ruling elder in his local congregation. And we picture the scene before us as though you were there. There is Jesus, the Lord of glory, on the road to Jerusalem, on his way to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of of his people. And here comes the rich young ruler. He doesn't casually stroll up to Jesus and say, Look, I've got an interesting doctrinal question I'd like you to answer. No. He's caught a glimpse of eternity. He runs up to Jesus. He falls at the feet of Jesus. He's there on his knees. He looks up into the face of Jesus. And he says these words that we read in verse 17. Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What is eternal life? Well, here it refers to the full enjoyment of the good things that God has prepared for his people in the age to come. 
in the new heavens and the new earth, the elect of God will have every imperfection of body and soul removed from them. And they will enter into the loving communion of the triune God forever and ever. My friend, there is no more important question than we can face today than how is it that we can lay hold of this eternal life? It's certainly the case that the Bible is so very clear. There's no possible way for a sinner to receive eternal life but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the particular message that our passage would impress upon us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response of submission of the heart to Christ alone. With the Lord's help, let's consider this passage of the word of God with three thoughts. First, we will see a preparation for the gospel. Second, a presentation of the gospel. And third, a response to the gospel. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, Pastor Hicks, what is it you mean by a preparation for the gospel? What is that exactly? Well, perhaps some of you have had that great privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with an unbeliever whether a family member or a neighbor or a co-worker, you have some time and so you seek to speak to them about that wonderful message of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and what this means for sinners. And in those moments, did you ever feel completely powerless? Looking at them and you see that they're simply not getting it. It's like you're taking ping pong balls and you're bouncing them off a bronze statue. Nothing is getting through. And you, and you look in their eyes and you can just see they're not prepared to hear this. They have no conceivable need in their minds for Jesus Christ or his gospel. And so in those moments, do you ever silently pray to yourself, Lord, give me the words to speak so that this person will understand, so that they will understand and be prepared to receive this message. Well, if that is our burden for the loss, ought it not be so important that we sit at the feet of the master evangelist, at the feet of the very author of the gospel himself, And ask this simple question. How is it that Jesus prepared this man, the rich young ruler, to hear the gospel? And when we would bring that question to our text, we're confronted with a very surprising answer, I believe. Contrary to how many Christians today may prepare someone to hear the gospel by saying something like, Well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We find that Jesus says nothing of the kind. How is it that Jesus prepared this man to hear the gospel? Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus prepared this man to hear the gospel by preaching the goodness of God. Let's read again 17 into um, 
and see what we find there. Verse 17. Now as he was going on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. Now, it's a surprising answer in many ways. Children, you might be wondering, is is Jesus saying here that he's not good? Is he saying here that he's not God? Well, nothing of the kind. Jesus is speaking to this man exactly as he is. As a man who doesn't understand who he's speaking to. He doesn't understand that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. Maybe you you heard these words and said, isn't this a kind of a, a harsh thing to say to a person? After all, this man called Jesus good teacher. And it seems as though he's being rebuked here. Why do you call me good? There is none good but one that is God. There's something about the goodness of God that this man needs to hear. Maybe it's surprising in in another way. After all, this man was a ruler in the synagogue. He was a leader among the people of God. He grew up in the covenant community. Received much instruction from the word of God throughout his life. But here Jesus is talking to him like he's still in catechism class. He's talking to him about the most basic attributes of God. He's talking about him, about God, as though this man didn't even know who God is. And I think what we're confronted with here is the terrifying reality That it is possible to be raised within the church. Even to be very active in the church. Even to have a position of leadership in the church. And yet all that instruction you have received from the word of God. It's just bounced off you. Nothing has gotten through. However much you may have notions of God in your head. You are a stranger. To God as he really is. You know the great Bible teacher John Calvin. He he put it this way. That we are ignorant even of who who we ourselves are. Until we first gaze upon the face of God. And then descend. It's a radical thought. You don't even know who you are let alone who God is, except you begin with this, the radical goodness and holiness of God. Have you ever been confronted with that, the goodness of God? Think about what the prophet Isaiah says, that in heaven even the unfallen angels who've never once sinned, their three pairs of wings. They cover their faces with one pair of wings. And they, they cover their feet with another pair of wings. And with the last pair of wings they fly. And they cry out day and night. Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that's creatures who've never sinned. What does the holiness of God mean for you? You who, as it were, come before his presence every Lord's day with uncovered face and uncovered feet without any knowledge of what this means for you. Does not the word of God say that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness among men? If you would come to lay hold of eternal life, this is something that cannot be missed or stepped over or passed by. You must be undone by the sight of the great and terrible goodness of God. We must be confronted in our hearts with this great truth. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That God is holy and I am not. And so we see that in the first place. Jesus prepares this man by preaching about the goodness of God. But notice that he doesn't stop there. He continues by preaching about the law of God. The law of God. He says in verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And so Jesus transitions from speaking about the character of God to the commandments of God. He focuses especially on commandments 7 through 9 of the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue. Those parts of the law of God that especially concern what we could say are our horizontal duties, our responsibilities to our fellow men and women. And these are the commandments which I trust you hear read from this pulpit every Lord's Day, every single day of the Christian Sabbath, we hear these words read in our hearing. And when we heard them read this morning, my question for you is this. Did you hear them in the way that this rich young ruler heard them? You see how it was he received the preaching of the law from Jesus. It's as though there's a checklist going on in his mind saying, done that, done that, done that. It says in verse 20, And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. So he's having these things go through his mind, and he's thinking, Okay, I've not slept with another man's wife. Check. I've not murdered anyone. Check. Down the list it goes. Check, 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 check. It's like he thinks he's in a job interview. He's really clinched this position. Oh, Jesus, I'm so relieved because you see I've kept all these commandments since I was a child. But what's missing? What's missing? Well, it's any understanding 
of the spirituality of the law. The fact that this law of God does not just concern the outward conduct, not just the actions that others can see. No, it concerns what lives within. The innermost recesses of the heart. The law is spiritual. It concerns the intentions and the motives. The least look of lust is adultery in God's sight. The least sinful anger is murder. And yet here is a man who can listen to the law of God without flinching. Without the least bit of pricking of his heart. You know, is it any wonder that our Father said that the preaching of the law is an essential element of true, faithful gospel preaching? One of the great Puritans, William Perkins, he put it this way, that except the sharp needle of the law first pierces the heart, the scarlet thread of the gospel can't be drawn in. How is it that anyone would ever see any possible need for a gospel of good news of salvation without an acquaintance with their terrible condition under the law of God as condemned sinners? How is it that anyone would ever come to saving faith apart from the work of the law upon their conscience? What happens when the law of God is not sealed to the heart of a sinner, well then salvation becomes a very light thing. It becomes something that is attainable within our grasp. I think of a story about that great apologist by the name of John Blanchard, who a number of years ago, when he was alive, was called to preach a sermon at a church in Northern Ireland. And as he came into that church as a, as a guest preacher, some of the people came to greet him, and they pointed to a man sitting at the back of the church. And they said, do you see that man over there? Well, that man is very religious, but he's not a Christian. Well, John Blanchard thinks, well, I'll go up and talk to this man. So he does. And this man, talking to John Blanchard, said, well, what they said is true. I've been to this gospel preaching church all my life. I've learned the, the tenets of the gospel very well, but I'm not a Christian. I've not laid hold of this salvation. But you know I'm very close. Very, very close. I've come to the place where there's just a single small step, and then I will be a believer. Then I will be saved. John Planchard, he shakes his head and says, My friend, you're not being honest with me. The man is taken aback. What do you mean, he says? I, I've told you the truth. I'm, I'm just a single, small step away. John Blanchard looks at him with such sadness and says, No, my friend, no. It's not one small step. What you need is a big miracle. Is it not the way with us when we begin to think about the ways of God according to mere human terms and human ideas apart from his holiness and apart from his law? Then we forget that there is this infinite gulf that separates the sinful, hell-deserving sinner from the thrice 
holy God. Is there someone here today who has never been acquainted with these realities? Is there someone here today who perhaps with this rich young ruler must come on a vacation or a trip to Mount Sinai? You must be brought to that dark mountain where the law of God was revealed with thunder and lightning. You must hear the voice of the law speaking to you in those words, Cursed is everyone who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. My friend, look at this law of God. Look at it long and hard and despair. Despair of ever finding salvation in yourself. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. We see that this passage, all praise to the Lord, is not merely about the preparation of the gospel, but also, in the second place, a presentation of the gospel. And as we proceed to what Jesus says in this connection, every word deserves our closest attention. Notice how Jesus responds to this hardened, rich young ruler. Verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. We need to stop right there. You see, the face, it's a window into the soul, isn't it? You can tell by looking on someone's face, what it is they're thinking, how it is that they feel towards you, what lives within And evident on Jesus' face is this look of love. Jesus looks upon this hardened sinner who is not even acquainted with the reality of the law or of sin, and he looks upon him with love. How beautiful is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, a heart that is so overflowing with goodwill and love that he is willing to even... Bring these overtures of mercy in the gospel to those who are the least deserving of it. And I wonder, when we have occasion to speak the truth of God to others, whether in our family or in the neighboring communities, would people look upon us and see that love upon our faces coming from our hearts in sincerity? How terrible it is when the word of God is used as an occasion for pride. Thinking that we are anything. As though anything that we've received as far as light is something we have attained to through our own wisdom or gifts. As opposed to seeing it all from the bountiful hand of God. How terrible when people instead of seeing the heart of Christ see among the professing church but the self-righteous Pharisees seeking not the good and salvation of the lost, but our own elevation and pride and self-regard. Will God forgive us and save us from that? But you notice how Jesus continues here. As he presents the gospel, we have some of the most remarkable words ever written in the scriptures. One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Well, children, I wonder if that's kind of confusing to you. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus says there's just one thing. Just one thing that you lack. And yet, he goes on to speak about all these other things. So which is it? Is it one thing or is it many things? Well, I put to you that this one thing is the true saving response to the gospel. That submission of the heart to Christ alone. But as we would think about the response the gospel requires, we see that we can think about that under two aspects. There is, on the one hand, repentance towards God, and in the second, faith towards Christ. And I love what the preacher Walter Chantry said in this connection. He said that true faith and true repentance are like conjoined twins. Wherever one is present, the other will not be absent. True faith is always joined to repentance. And true repentance is always born of faith. So let's consider these things under those two thoughts. There's repentance towards God in the first place. And when we look at what Jesus says here, we see that if we would understand the nature of true repentance, it is always a confronting of secret sin. You see, this man had heard the preaching of the law. Commandments 7 through 9. But Jesus has held back. He had held back from that 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. He not said that earlier. But now. Now he does not hold back. He preaches that. With a specific application to this man. For he who knows what lives within the heart. The Lord Jesus, he sees that this is the sweet and the bosom sin of the sinner that stands before him. That though this man was a leader in his religious community, though every Sabbath day he would be saying prayers with his lips to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God which he worshipped was this dreadful idol of money. Money. He lived for money. Never content with what he had. Always striving for more. For him having money. For having wealth. For getting ahead in the world. This was truly the God which he trusted in. We have this exposed before this man. Jesus knows his secret sin. That's always the case with true repentance. Under the searching light of God's law, that which is held dearest to the heart as the substitute for looking to God for all things, that is what must go. But it's not only that the secret sin is uncovered in the course of this preaching of repentance. There is also a change of mind required. You see, that's what the word repentance means. It means a change of mind. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about that. He said it in in rather stark terms. He said, Jesus came to save us from sinning. 
And if we are resolved to go on and on living in sin, then Christ and our soul will never agree. Without repentance, salvation is impossible. Without a true internal change of turning from sin, turning unto God, there is no true salvation nor saving response to the gospel. The third and last thing which I would draw from this text and what is really at the forefront is that this repentance requires drastic action. Drastic action. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. Really three imperatives here. Commands. Go. Get out of here. Leave my presence. Go where you need to to deal with this sin in your life. Sell. Sell whatever you have. Have a great big garage sale. Every single possession that you have, sell it all away. Give. He says, I don't want you to keep a single nickel or dime of your stinking money. You, rich young ruler, you need to get rid of it all. Part with all of your money today. Now there is drastic action. And that's always the case where Jesus would target the secret bosom sin of the heart. He will not be content until that sin is dealt with in drastic ways. But of course, it's not only the repentance towards God, but also faith in Christ. Faith towards Christ. Come. Come, Jesus says. Jesus is, the, is one who greets every sinner. In the words of the gospel, with those words, Come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, this is the way in which the uh, faith is described as a coming. If you had someone that you really trusted, or you had not met in a long time, and you saw them on the other side of the, ro- of the room, you'd not just keep them at a distance, you'd walk up to them. And so it is with saving faith. The, the feet of the heart, they must go out to Christ. The hands of the heart, they must cleave unto Christ. They must, must trust in Him for total salvation. It's not the case that we need to ascend up into heaven, that we need to come to Him physically. No, it's a motion of the heart. Come to Jesus Christ in trusting faith. But not only is that command come given under this designation of faith in Christ, but also follow me. Follow me, Jesus says. These are the terms in which he offers himself. He doesn't say that you can have me as your priest to deal with your sin, but you don't have to have me as your king to obey my commands. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you can do without me as your prophet, to heed my instructions and revelations and divine truths. No. It's only as the whole sinner goes to the whole Christ that there is hope for salvation. The response of the gospel requires that we embrace Him not only as Savior, but also as Lord. And yes, we 
confess and affirm on the basis of the word of God that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. But the saving faith of the gospel, it always manifests itself in fruit. There is always that true obedience in the heart which is born as a result of saving faith. And finally, you have those words, take up the cross. Take up the cross. This is no light, airy, fairy view of Christianity. He's not sugarcoating anything. He's not holding back anything that this man needs to know. He is saying to be my disciple is not to live on flowery beds of ease. No, it is a life of self-denial. It is a life of spiritual hardship. It is a life that would even be willing to take up the death march. There is that cross, that symbol of the very worst of offenders the accursed death of the worst of criminals. And Jesus says, this is the lot of my disciples. You must take up the cross. And so what are we to make of these things, congregation? Repentance towards God, faith towards Christ. Well, the thing that I would take from this is that so often the way we receive the message of the gospel is so very wrong. We hear words like repent and believe, and it all becomes very abstract. These are general things, yes, but they never really land home in the concrete realities of your own life. But for this man, he encountered the gospel with exactly the sins that he had and exactly the hang-ups that he had that were preventing him from coming to Christ. And I freely grant that his condition may not be precisely your condition today. Perhaps it is the case that for you, the sweet bosom sin of your heart, the idol of your soul is not riches. But what is it that Christ today is putting his finger on? What is the idol of your heart which Jesus says you must smash to smithereens? Well, for some of you, perhaps it is not riches. But I wonder, is it recreation? Recreation. How terrifying it is to talk to people who are so caught up with their own pastimes, with their toys, with their games, with the things that pass their time and make them happy, that they have no time to consider the state of their own souls. Never caught a glimpse of eternity. Because you're too wrapped in your world of imagination and fantasy. Oh, I tell you, my friend, that today and today for you, you must part with that idol. You must take that idol and smash it to smithereens. It's simply not worth going to hell. Perhaps for someone else here today, it's not riches or recreation. Maybe it is reputation. Are you afraid of being a fool for Christ? Are you afraid about what other people will say about you or think about you if they knew you were all out for Jesus? Oh, my friend, whatever you think it will cost you to stand for the Lord, you must know that the words hold true. 
What profited a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? But maybe it's not any of those things for you. Maybe it's not riches or recreation or reputation. Maybe it is relationship. Relationship. You know, there are parents who will not even confront their own children with their sin. There are things going on under their own roof that they know are displeasing to the Lord, but truth be known, they are afraid of their own children. They are so caught up with the thought of not offending their own children that they will not stand for the Lord. They will not call their own children unto repentance. But you can multiply the examples. There's any number of relationships that can drive us away from the Lord, whether it's a romantic relationship that we know will bring us into a relation of being unequally yoked, whether it's a friendship or a job or whatever it is that we know is going to bring us away from God. There comes the point, where do we stand? What will we do? with the idol of our own heart. Well, here we see, congregation, the Lord Jesus' presentation of the gospel. But in the third and last place, I must also speak to you about a response to the gospel here in verse 22. You know, I, I think it's probably accurate that a great many professing Christians... I find it very difficult to relate to this man's response to the Lord Jesus. A great many people, they left the Lord Jesus and the encounter with him rejoicing, filled with happiness. But here is a man who left in a very different way. Perhaps it's the case that some people can't relate to this rich young ruler's response is because they, like the rich young ruler, have heard many, many sermons like the one that he heard. But for them, the only thing that they took away with them was the promise. A promise which the Lord Jesus had given. You will have treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. Having heard such a promise as that, why did this man leave as he did? Because he was spiritually discerning enough to know the difference between hearing the promise of the gospel and responding to the gospel in the way that was required. Do we understand that difference? Look at this man's face. Verse 22. But he was sad at this word. The face, as we said, is a window into the heart. And evident on this man's face is something so dreadful. You know, that word in the Greek that's translated sad, it's only used once else in the entire Bible in Matthew chapter 16. And it's used there to describe a threatening, cloud-filled sky before a great storm. There is darkness on this man's face. 
Here is someone who is revealing a heart that is not soft and compliant and responsive to the words of Christ, but a hardening heart. In resistance, opposition, dare we say, scandal and stumbling. Who does he think he is to speak to me in such a way? There is a hardening heart here. But look at this man's feet. And he was sad at this word and went away. This man went away from the only one who could forgive his sins. He went away. He went away from the only one who had any right to reign in his heart. He went away. My friend, if he died in that condition, and there's no indication here that he didn't, if he died that way, then we know that he will also go away again. At the words, depart from me, you cursed. He went away to everlasting darkness. He went away to flame and judgment for his sins. He went away. There's a heart that's not only hardened, but repelled against the gospel. He's driven to flee from the face of the Lord Jesus. But look at this man's motive. He was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Ruler, why did you go away from the Lord Jesus? Well, if he would answer that question honestly, he would say, I went away because I loved my sin. I could not part with what I truly loved and adored. I wanted my money. And though I have built my life upon my religion, I would sooner part with my God than with my idol. Here we have a heart that is hardened and repelled, but also enslaved. Enslaved. The chains are locked. The claws are in. The dog returns to his vomit. He's compelled because he is enslaved to his wicked, idolatrous heart. My friend, I want you to take a long, hard look at this man as he walks away from Christ. And I want to ask you to ask yourself this honestly. Is there anything in you today that can relate to that? Whether suddenly or slowly, will there come the day when you as well will walk away from Christ? My friend, I implore you, I plead with you, you must not go. You must not turn away from Christ. What does it say here? It says he went away sorrowful. That's what's the lot of everyone who walks away from Christ. Just a life of grief and sorrow and dread at the wrath to come. My friend, where will you go? Christ alone is the words of eternal life. There is no hope apart from him. 
But if you would hear these things today, and you would despair, if you would say, I hear his words about the, I hear these words about the holy character of God, and I say, I can have nothing to do with such a God. He only wants to constrain me and ruin my joy. If you hear about that holy law of God and says that is something that I must flee from. If you hear about this call to repentance and says, well, that's for super Christians, but not for me. If you hear this call to take up the cross and say that this cost is just too high. I tell you that you must look away from your cross. If you would despair at the cost of being his disciple, look instead to his cross. Look at his cross and have your heart softened. Here is one who is on the road to Jerusalem. He is on his way to offer his life as a sacrifice for sinners. Even the worst of offenders, even the chief of sinners. Look at his cross and have your heart softened, but also have your heart attracted. Here is one who has left his very throne of heaven and he became poor that sinners like you and I might be rich in order that we may have true treasure in heaven. And look at his gospel, my friend, and have your heart freed. You know, this man, he was very correct in looking within himself and seeing that there was nothing that could begin to obey Christ's gospel. Indeed, it is impossible for a rich man or for any sinner to savingly submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ with trusting heart to Christ alone. But where the sinner looks away from self and looks unto the cross of Jesus Christ, He is enabled to say, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. For all those things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Through the saving power of the Holy Spirit, sinner, you can know the submission of the heart to Christ alone. Look unto Jesus Christ today. Find that he gives all that he commands and more. Amen.